Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Outer Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum's fifth quarter. I'm Nicole Hayes and I'm here with Rana Hussain. Hello, everyone. And we're delighted to welcome Brandon Jack here, former AFL footballer, brother of former Swans co-captain Kieran and son of NRL legend Gary, but more importantly, author of 28, a powerful and candid book that exposes the brutal reality of what it takes to play sport at an elite level and digs deep into the specifics of AFL footy. It explores questions of masculinity, sexuality, addiction, and perhaps unexpectedly for a footballer's memoir, creativity. It's also beautifully written. Congratulations, Brandon. This is an amazing book. Uh, Hey, Nicole, Rana. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, It's great to, you know, I've listened to the podcast for a while now, so it's actually very nice to to finally have the opportunity to come on, which is great. (laughs) Oh, we've we wanted to have you on forever. We're big fans of your writing too. So, hello. <laughs> um, so, football obviously is in your blood, but it didn't start with AFL. Your transition to AFL wasn't all super smooth. Can you tell us about how you navigated that as a child? Interesting thing when you kind of say football's in your blood. It's like, well, what kind of football? Mm-hmm. I grew up in a in a rugby league household, and and obviously my dad Gary was one of the great players of the 1980s and I never saw him play, but, you know, we had photos around our house of him and all his awards and people would stop me on the street and always talk about, you know, how great dad was. So I knew growing up that, that football was this thing that, that people really loved and that people admired. And all I wanted to do growing up was be the Australian fullback. And so did my older brother, Kieran, and my other older brother, Reese. That's all we wanted to be. Kieran, at the age of, I think, maybe 12 or 13, started playing Aussie Rules in Sydney, which was something that not many people were doing at the time. This is like late 90s, early 2000s and had a fair bit of success in it. And I guess when he started doing quite well with the Swans in about 2009, 2010, I was also not enjoying playing rugby league. So, you know, I saw this other sport that my brother was doing well at, thought maybe I'd be good at it too because he was good at it. Wasn't as good at it as he was, but, you know, I ended up being all right. And the the joke is that, you know, dad wasn't happy about us playing Aussie rules, but I don't think he really cared. He just enjoyed that his sons were playing football. You know, I, I could have I could have told him I was playing union. It would have been the same thing. It was just a matter of, you know, sports was so important to us and, and that we could do that was important to him as well. You write that uh, we often get the kind of rosy career writers when it comes to sports books and footy books, but your career has been way more complicated than that. Can you tell us why did you write this book? Yeah, well, my career is the the more typical career. And, you know, it's almost a, 
running joke that around Christmas time you get the classic memoir of the 300 Gamer comes out and I have bookshelves <laughs> of those books. I do. And, you know, they are what they are and, and they recount a career because in my eyes the meaning is already there for that career because they, they did what they set out to do. And the reality is that most people don't get that that ride off into the sunset. You know, I, I played 28 games and felt like a failure coming out of the system. And that's a, that's a common feeling for a lot of people. And the view of professional sports from that angle, from someone who, you know, wasn't in the team every week and who, who was in an environment where it feels like you're competing against the team you're trying to get in, which is such an interesting dynamic. You, you feel like you're competing against your best mates mm. to be in that team. That to me is the reality of elite sport, elite team sports. It's something I wrestle with because I that's what it is and I, I don't think it should change because that's why we have the superstars. You know, it's by comparison and we wouldn't have the superstars without the guys who aren't in the team as well. So I don't think everyone should be given equal amount of games because I don't think that would fix any. That wouldn't change anything. It's just the unfortunate reality of the system that, you know, not everyone makes it. And I didn't really consider that coming into the system. Sharing that so that people knew that, you know, this this thing we all love, it's great, but it does hurt a few people along the way. I wanted to share that that perspective on things. You were really competitive all the way through the book and you kept your stats and you were fiercely competitive and fiercely committed to breaking into the seniors for such a long time. But the one thing that seemed to be missing is there wasn't a lot of fun in the playing. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think you continued to play after you were enjoying it? There was fun when playing. Like I can look back now and see moments of joy on the field and I think that actually playing was the moment where everything else kind of went away. Because before the game, I used to get so nervous. I used to get so put so much pressure on myself about having to meet certain standards, having to play a certain way to crack into the team. And then after the game, which is like you're thinking about every small thing that happened. And, and so many football players have this recall and you can pinpoint exactly where you were in a field for a certain point in time, you know, what you should have done. And you kind of prepare yourself for the meeting that's going to come up Monday because you can't hide from that truth. It, it's captured on camera from so many different angles. Why why I kept doing it is, you know, that, that was what I was trying to figure out in the book. So I, I just mentioned before that, you know, with 300 gamers, I guess the meaning is kind of already there when they write the book. It's just reflecting on a career. And, and I'm really writing this to search for that meaning in my career. Something I hid from from, from a fair while. There's probably two, three years where I just didn't think about footy at all. Didn't want to reflect on what I perceived as my failure. Why I kept doing it is... You know, it took a lot of soul searching and I, I couldn't remove football from my sense of family. You know, and I think that's, that's something everybody wants. Everybody wants to be a part of something. And for me, football was my in to a family, in my own family. It was our central part. And then growing up, you know, making it to the Swans, being part of a group was something that I wanted to do so badly. Um, so I wanted to be in that senior team. And then it kind of, the dynamic changed throughout and it was, got to a point where I wanted to prove that I was good enough to the coaches. I wanted to prove them wrong. And then in the latter half of my career, that kind of went away and and I stopped trying to prove that I was good enough for a senior team. And and I just started playing for, you know, for Reece Shaw, for example, and and for Dean Towers and Lloyd Paris. I started realizing that I play football because it it helps me be with people I do care about and love. The relationships in the teams are really interesting the way that you explore them in this book but one incident stood out to me um, at one of your first team dinners 
you say you had to stand up in front of the team and tell the story of the first time you had sex. First of all, what the fuck? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is this a common thing? Uh, look, I, I'm not in every other team's environment, but I, I know how, like, I've played local footy as well and I know that these things happen. Um, and, and, and at the time I found it really funny. Um, and I then was part of a group that would do that to the next guys coming in. You know, we'd make the next young guy stand up and tell their story and, we, and we'd egg them on. And, and the odd thing is that by doing it, you feel like you're part of it. You feel like you're in the group. So you get a kind of small payoff from it. And, and, and I, you know, standing up at a team dinner when I was 18 and having to do that, I was really, really shy as a kid, really shy. And I was really shy talking to girls as well. And I, and I felt in that time that there was this kind of masculine standard that, you know, because my story wasn't super, you know, great and it was just like I was really nervous telling it, I almost felt judgment coming in. There may have been, there may not have been, I don't know, but that's how I felt. And then I traced that back to, you know, when I was 10 years old at a footy camp, it was the same thing. I'm 10 years old at my first ever rugby league camp and what are the boys bonding over? It's going down to a house where there's girls drinking out the front and calling out kind of slurs I guess to these to these women who are drinking and and that's how I know that you know there's this masculinity thing um that that exists and and it was there from a very young age and I guess it became heightened as I got older but it's something that's been in that environment for as long as I've been involved. I want to dig a little bit deeper on that and in particular around sex you know sex seems to be quite a pervasive thing in, in these circles and it's such a big part of how players mm. seem to relate to each other and you certainly talk about that in the book. I'm wondering what room that leaves for players who aren't straight or yeah. have different kind of experiences around sex. I think it just relies on this greater masculine narrative we have of what guys, guys, I'm doing air quotes there, can relate to each other about and you know, I can go to any, I could go to any footy change room in Australia and know that, you know, if I just talked about women, if I, if I talked about getting drunk, I'd fit in. That's what has kind of been, I guess, passed down because I do that because that's existed before and it's, they've done it, I guess, because it's existed before as well. Mm. So at some point, you know, somebody has to come in and be like, Hey, like maybe not, or this doesn't make me comfortable because I'm, I'm adamant there are so many other people out there who, who are uncomfortable with those conversations, but we, we buy in because it, met, it, it allows us to fit in because mm. you don't want to be the one on the outer. And as you said, you know, for, for people who don't fit that kind of normative story, I guess, or that, that identity, fitting in is changing who you are. And that's not, that's not healthy at all. And, and I definitely feel like I experienced that in my career. There were, there were things about myself I changed and hid because I didn't want to be the one who stood out or the one who mm. didn't fit in with the group. So, yeah, I think sharing those stories and, and being somebody who, who's relatively succeeded in that environment and being able to now point it out and say, you know, I didn't enjoy that slash it's not necessarily the right thing to do is important. I'm so, yeah, I mean, I relate to that so hard, probably in a completely different way. For me, it's a lot more around, you know, culture and race as well and gender. Mm. But I've learnt lessons over my journey. I'm wondering what you know now that you didn't back then. I'm always learning. Like I, I wrote the book when I was 25, 26 and 
even now I kind of look back on it and I'm like, oh, I would have liked to talk about this more or maybe I've, I've learned this upon reflection and that's a process that I'll continually be on in my life. But when I look back at myself as a as a 18, 19-year-old, I really do see someone who was who was terrified of not fitting in, straight up would do anything to be part of a group and to be, you know, seen as one of the guys. That It was the moment I stopped playing football or stepped out of that environment, I guess. I, I did struggle not being part of a team environment anymore, but it did force me to find new values and to see who I was. And I don't know if I would have done that in that environment. Maybe I would have. Maybe, you know, getting a bit older, I would have been able to do that and would have been so insecure about not fitting in. But the timing of how it worked in my life was, you know, got to 23, 24 and was like, oh, you know, I, I don't have to be that person. I, I can, you know, branch out. You know, it's unfortunate that a lot of people only realize that a bit later, which, which makes me think, why aren't we telling people sooner? And, and how can we actually do something to make them realize it sooner? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Darcy Vessio and you're listening to the Outer Sanctum podcast. That question about authenticity, you, you talked about the struggle for you to just be yourself and how often you hid who you were. And um, I imagine you are not the only one. And it's about fitting in, you said. But mm. is there space for authenticity in elite team sport? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, there are, there are instances that we see. So we saw the North Melbourne conference yesterday. I mean, how, how beautiful was that? I didn't see that coming from anywhere. And that moment there is one that just blows my mind and, and you, you hope that that will continue to be the, the norm moving forward. There's, there's social change that, that seems to be happening and I say that with a, with a degree of consciousness that I, that I might be existing in a bubble, you know. I'm so aware that there are people out there who, who just don't agree at all with that, um, which is something I continually try and remind myself of to try and how do we then communicate with those people. But I think... Elite sports is a difficult one because performance and winning is the ultimate goal in those environments. You can say it's about being a good person and clubs can still make great people. But at the end of the day, and this is why fans go to games and why we why they give out a premiership cup to the team that wins. And in that environment, that is the ultimate goal. So it's a really difficult balance of, of how do we achieve success, but also how do we ensure that the right people are in here? And that's that's something that's really a question moving forward for sporting organizations. And yeah, I think it just requires a lot of resources. People from different areas working together to ensure that the balance is better. Just for context for our listeners, the incident that Brandon's talking about is the North Melbourne were celebrating being debt-free and during Trans Awareness Week welcomed Danny Laidley back to the fold and it was just a really amazing public moment and just an incredible expression of support for Danny. This is the challenge though, isn't it? When you're talking about culture, you're talking about something deep and, and, and entrenched and it does seem to 
does seem to manifest in fairly destructive ways that, you know, the drinking culture, the just the disregard for for women generally, I think, or for for anything that doesn't, as you say, fit into the mould. How do you break through when it is such a deeply entrenched part of Australian culture, if we're completely honest? The drinking thing is like, wasn't just normalised to a football arena, for example. Like I have friends who work in different careers and and they would do the same kind of ba- drinking behavior and it's it's a thing I know with with young men to to binge drink and getting to the root of why we do it because it's a bonding experience which is which gives you the the positive aspect of it but it's a, it's a thing that I did to damage myself as well and I know a lot of people do that so you have these two kind of conflicting things going on one where you feel like you you're meeting you or you're meeting new people and you're happy because you're around people the negative is like I'm doing this, to, you know, to, to feel no pain because you're hiding from that pain. Changing culture is like uh, it's it's such a task, and I know that you know I, I love that the people involved in the outer sanctum as well. This is something that comes up a lot. You know, what can we? I think it comes back to me for what can we each do individually. And for me, that's kind of where I'm at now with it, and I, and I know my circle around me and and how I can influence them. Because when you start thinking about the, the big, great changes, it can become quite daunting. It is necessary to think big picture, but I, I at times have become so so daunted by this this big thing that we're trying to change that I forget that I can do small things and, and, and be a good person myself. So I, I guess probably the past year or two with me, it's, it's become really about making sure I'm the best person possible. Because what good is it changing the world if, if I don't, you know, fit into that if, if I'm not actually living it and breathing it. From a young age, we have to help men become better men or, or have an idea of what it means to be a man that, that doesn't damage them because then you get to your 20s like I did and you've relied on this thing for so long, it falls away so easily and it's not a healthy centre to be built around. Talk about the sort of small individual changes and being the good person, but if you could magic wand something... When you look at the industry right now, you know, what's one thing if you could just click your fingers and fix? Jeez, <laughs> where do we start? The thing I see when I look at the AFL, for example, is, and, and sporting cultures in general, and it comes up with the, the Tim Payne stuff that happened yesterday, for example. Organizations are kind of doing these press releases to cover up or, or just to please an audience that they feel is, is, is criticizing them. And it's a way mm. to cat, it's a way to, to please everyone because. The Tim Payne thing, for example, happened before he was named captain. And it wasn't an issue with his captaincy until it came out again. So if their values are truly about that, why did it get this far? So I really believe that, that organizations have to truly believe in what they're doing and, and what they stand for. And getting new, fresh perspective in the organization is so critical to that. Because we've had this kind of linear transgression of, of passing the baton on for so long and, and those values just stay the same. Mm. We need people to come in and, and shake things up and say, hey, I, I haven't been included in this for a while and this is how it looks from the outside. And then living those values from there, I think, becomes a bit easier. Oh, you just described my day job. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you and pivot a little bit to the role of creativity in your life. And, mm. and the parallels between your creative life and your approach to football. I'm sort of interested in this concept that we often talk about, which is that sport and art are mutually exclusive. 
you know, this is such a interesting thing in my life now because I, I view myself as a creative and, and, and I hang around creatives more than I do footballers now. My best friends are in bands, my, my partner's in a band, I hang around writers all the time. But I remember when I was in um, year eight in high school, we had music class and we had a choir performance at night and the choir was doing like Grease Lightning. I think it was doing Grease Lightning or something like that. And at that age, I was like of that view that art and culture were feminine almost, like the opposite of being the manly football player. And I was going to be the manly football player while I was trying to prove to everyone that I was. So I didn't go to that performance we had at night and I, I didn't tell my parents. I just like said I had football training on to the teacher and didn't go because I didn't want to sing in front of people. And that was a view I held for so long, like football and art and music are, are different things. What I see now is like it's a, it's an almost cultural debate about like high and low culture and, and ones of the mind and ones of the body and all these things. But I love both these things and there are so many people that love both these things. I, I tend to view them as, as an expression of the self. In life, I think we're looking for ways to imprint ourselves or to, to prove that we can do something. Like I can turn this idea into reality. I can kick this ball through those goals. That's what we want to do. And and for me, you know, the idea that art is this ethereal thing that we pull from nowhere and it's just like inspiration. I'm like, no, you work hard at art, you know. You work really hard to turn this thing into reality. And, and that's just the perspective I've gained on, you know, having lived both lives, I guess. You're singing from the Outer Sanctum songbook here. This is very much a conversation we've been having for such a long time, so it's delightful to hear you expand on that. I Just watch out for those writer types. They can be dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the writing side of things, what sort of reception has your book received, especially I'm thinking from former teammates or other football people because you present some pretty challenging ideas? I knew writing it that not everyone would agree with it. Not everyone would, would get it necessarily. Like, you know, I, I, I look at guys I played with who have had that dream career and it, it almost would kind of challenge their narrative of, you know, I, I have what I have because I worked really, really hard. And that's, that's their truth. And, and I guess I have my own truth that I tell myself and that I think is true as well. So I knew not everyone would agree with it. But, you know, I, I received from teammates of varying levels of success, nice messages, you know, from, from guys who've played 200-odd games, from guys who had the same amount of as career games as me almost. So knowing that it kind of made them look inside internally and, and see what their own motivations were. I got a few messages like that, which were really nice. Ones that I really enjoyed were from the parents of players. So parents of my teammates messaging me saying, I like, I had no idea. Because you, 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 it would be really hard to explain that, mm. to get across the, the, like, they knew it was tough for their, for their kids in that environment, but to know the full scope of it. So to know that that opened a few eyes as well was great. I get messages every day from like local footy players or from a, a fair few AFLW players as well, which I've, I've really enjoyed getting those messages, knowing that it's not just a male environment like this, you know, that this is a common thing across footy. And that was something I, I did think about writing. I'm like, am I just writing a book about men's footy or is this about footy in general? And getting messages from AFLW players was really, really was nice for me to see. Not, not many negative things have been said. Some, some kind of criticisms about wanting me to, to be more specific about tidbits, like especially with my family stuff. Some people wanted me to go deeper into that. But I, I made the choice, you know, I, I didn't want to write anything that would end up in a, in a Daily Mail article because that would overshadow the purpose of this book for me. And I'm, I'm happy like to receive criticisms about that because that was a choice I made with my writing. How have your family received it and 
in particular, yeah. I'm interested in what Kieran's thoughts have been. Kieran, Kieran was probably the main person I was I was bouncing things off towards the end of the book once it had been written. And his trust in me is is something that you know I, I struggle with trust from a lot of people. Like, and I struggle to trust people as well. But Kieran's the person who I'm like, if he says something and, and if he believes me, then that's super important. There's there's things that Kieran didn't know about me that were in that book. You know, drug use, how I felt about football growing up. For him, it would have been. I know he cried when he first read it. I, I met him just after, and he told me that he'd been in tears. Kieran and and, and Grace, my partner Grace, these are people that are going to learn things about me that I'm a bit, you know, wow, do I want to do this? But you know, acceptance is is such a beautiful thing. As per you know, the rest of my family, I, I'm I'm really wrestling with how much I share about the narrative going forward, but. There has been interaction since, positive interaction, which is which is really, really nice. And that's something that I, I didn't really see coming. Knowing that that it has been received well or or, or, or you know that for me is is uh super important. We all wish you find some peace there. That's the most important thing for everybody. So what's next? What are you doing now? <laughs> I am working on, you know, I, I want to keep writing books. As you know, once you get the first one out, you probably just want to write a second and a third and keep going and going. I've been working on some fiction. I mean, I really, I almost feel like a cheat in a way because I wrote my life story to start with and I don't really feel like an author yet. I feel like that was like, you know, think of something think of something original. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a novel come out, which is something I'm, I'm investigating now and really doing every day. Outside of that, you know, for the music side of things, I still make music, but I'm not like I'm kind of at peace with how music fits into my life. Unlike a lot of artists who, you know, their their soul is in performing live and things like that. I'm happy just like recording songs at home and and playing guitar with friends and and not having that be something I have to make a career out of. Which I'm I'm very fortunate that I can also work on the side and and have a interest in music without it being everything to me. You know, I, I'm in a in a nice place you know I'm in a settled place and I know I'm continually learning as well and that's the thing I think I've said before like I wrote that book when I was 26 and I'll continue to change how I view things and reflect on that book and maybe at some point I'll come back to it and and rewrite it in a different way and that'd be interesting in 10 years or so to do but you know I'm I'm continually moving forward in life. That sounds like a really wonderful place to, to leave things. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Brandon. Like I said, we've been dying to get you on the show for such a long time and Rana and I are super chuffed to have had this opportunity. <laughs> Congratulations again on such a beautifully written, just really compelling story. Um, and thank you for making the time to, to speak to us. Good luck with the sales and good luck with what happens next. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Rana. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.